Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning, and uh, good to be back. Uh, the family and I went to the beach this week, and so uh, thankful for safe travels and just a week away, uh, but it's good to be back. and thankful for uh, Jeff Ranson that we have uh, somebody that uh, you can come that's done it for years, and you can trust that he's going to bring the word in a good way and, and uh, fill in uh, admirably. Uh, perhaps some would say better than. So, uh, but I'm really thankful for Jeff, and he's just such an asset uh, to Gateway and, and all that he does. Uh, before we get started with our message this morning, you may have heard about the earthquake that occurred uh, over the weekend here in Haiti, and a sizable earthquake. I believe it was 7.2. And unfortunately, uh, our uh, partnership in Haiti, if you don't know, uh, we have a partnership called Gateway Mission Haiti. And so we have an ongoing partnership with the church in Jeremy Haiti, uh, where we send groups, used to be every year, but recently, uh, due to really political unrest, uh, if you don't know much about that situation, uh, it's kind of ugly. Uh, we were supposed to send a team at the end of July, and uh, that got canceled because of the political unrest. And uh, so usually we send two teams a year down, and we just partner with the same church. Uh, so it's short term for the people that go on the mission trip, but Gateway has a long-term partnership with this uh, community and this church. Uh, but uh, over the weekend with this earthquake, unfortunately, uh, there was damage done. Now, the great part, the blessing is that uh, no lives were lost, and I've not heard of any injuries, so that's great uh, from that perspective. But uh, there were 12 families uh, from uh, our church there that whose homes were either destroyed or damaged in a big way. And so uh, what we're looking to do over the next three weeks, it, with your help, is to raise $12,000. That's $1,000 for every family. Uh, and so if you would be able to help us out with that, um, there are a few opportunities. Uh, you can write in the memo line, uh, GMH relief of your check, or you can give online. There's a drop down uh, for where, what fund you want to give to. Typically, you would give to like Taze Valley uh, for like your tithe. Well, in that same listing, you can find uh, like Haiti relief or GMH relief uh, is one of the options there. You can also text to give. So the number you text to is 84321. And then you just text your donation amount and GMH-relief if you want to do that. And so, like I said, we're doing that. Over, we have that open over the next three weeks here. We're help, hoping to get these uh, 12 families kind of back on their feet um, and, and uh, help them in their recovery from this earthquake. If you don't know much about the history of Haiti, uh, obviously there's been other earthquakes, and it just seems like a country that right when they get kind of back on their feet, they get knocked down back again. And, um, and so uh, these, these are beautiful people. If you've never had the chance to go on one of our mission trips, if, you know, the next time we're able to go, I hope you consider that because it is, uh, they are amazing people, and uh, they don't have much but they would never tell you that. They are proud of what they have, and they don't complain, and uh, they love Jesus uh, just as much as any one of us. And it is amazing to be able to kind of interact with them and be a part with them. So uh, if you can help these families kind of get back on their feet, uh, you can give through one of those channels, and, and we appreciate your generosity in that and in so many other areas. So 
This week we are in week three of our message series called Faith with Doubt. And in this series, uh, we're getting behind the root causes of our doubt so that we can cut them off at the pass or we can nip them in the bud and prevent any unnecessary or unwanted struggles or discouragement or, or disappointment that can come with doubt in our faith. Now, we acknowledge that it's very normal to have questions and even doubt in your faith journey, but it's how we deal with them that matters. Now, for most of our questions, there are good answers. We just need to know them. We need to know why we believe what we believe. That's what Christian apologetics helps us with. And and we admit that, you know what, there are some questions that we don't and will never have answers for. There is beauty in the mystery of God and His Son, Jesus. And we live, according to the Apostle Paul, we live by faith and not by sight when it comes to some things. Some people that you talk to out in the world, are, they're struggling believers who need to know just what the evidence is to help them alleviate their doubt. And so we need to share what we know with them, even if that just means sharing with them a YouTube channel where they can listen to somebody else who is knowledgeable on the subject. And others you talk to will be unbelievers, and you need to share the gospel with them and pray for the Holy Spirit to do His work in their heart because that's the important thing to remember here. We are not changing the hearts of people. The Holy Spirit is changing hearts. So I want to repeat one more time that it's the confidence in our faith that helps us explain the things we know, and it's the humility in our faith to say there are things that we don't and will never know. Now, so far we've looked at two root causes of doubt in our faith. In week one, we looked at a muddled memory where we start to think that we are the source of our own blessings. The second week, we looked at a partial picture Like the blind men and the elephant, we allow our own sometimes painful life experiences or religion to be the only artist painting our picture of God. But God is always bigger than what we can see or capture in a single photo. Before we get into the third root cause of doubt this morning, let me say that one of our goals each week is to ask ourselves if the root cause that we're discussing that day has any roots in us. And if it does, hopefully we can apply the cure in each case. Now, the first week for a muddled memory, we said that the cure was to work at developing an attitude of gratitude in yourself or in your children, in your grandchildren, and so on. Or last week we talked about for a partial picture, we need to apply Bible study and prayer. We need to get back into the study of God's Word, develop a habit of prayer, and join with others who are doing the same so that you can have a fuller view of God. Today we're going to be talking about this third root cause of doubt, and that is a faulty foundation. If you have your Bible with you this morning, uh, you can head on over to John chapter 20, and we're going to be getting there in just a little bit so you can be ready. As you head there, though, let's talk a little bit about faulty foundations. Now, most of us can understand the problem of a faulty foundation. If you're a builder or an engineer, or if you've ever lived in a house with a bad foundation, then you can understand the problems that this can cause. There are famous examples of uh, buildings with a faulty foundation or a bad foundation. Perhaps the most famous is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Uh, You know, if your house looked like the Leaning Tower of Pisa, 
that would be a problem, right? Somehow it continues to stay up. Your house probably would not eventually, right? If, if you had somebody build you a house and it started looking like that, you would be uh, calling up a lawyer, right? Like that's not how that's supposed to go. We do research before we build because we don't want the bad foundation. Unfortunately, earlier this year, there was a high rise in Miami that killed uh, almost 100 people, and they believe it was due to a bad foundation. Now, when you have a faulty foundation on your house or a building, you can uh, try to cover it up with plaster or cement. Perhaps you've bought a house where people have done that, and you get stuck with it later, right? Uh, but you can cover this up with plaster or cement or maybe, for some of us, uh, duct tape. Uh, but guess what? The problem is still there. Eventually, it's going to manifest itself again, and you're going to have to deal with it. And the same is true in our faith. Just like putting a building on a bad foundation, a believer in Christ who has a faulty foundation may start her journey with enthusiasm and excitement, and they're on fire. But when tough times come their way, they lose their joy under the weight of confusion and uncertainty. See, if you build your faith on a faulty foundation, you're going to eventually have problems of instability that will lead to doubt, that could lead to discouragement, and eventually it could lead to you abandoning your faith altogether. Let me give you some examples of a faulty foundation when it comes to your faith. The first is the church. And that might sound strange coming from a a preacher that I would mention that the church can be the source of an unstable faith, but I think you will understand what I mean if you give it some thought. See, far too often, especially in years past, the church has discouraged the asking of questions and shunned the presence of doubt. People who grow up in church may get the feeling that it's wrong to have questions and you shouldn't have these doubts. Your faith should be so strong that you don't have these things and that they're supposed to sign off on anything and everything that's taught in the church. And honestly, there are a lot of churches and church leaders who want that. They don't want any questions or pushback or challenge or, or any uh, re- resistance to anything they put out. They just want you to blindly accept. But our faith is not built on any local church or even the whole church, as the big C church as we call it, because that's a faulty foundation. It shouldn't be built on the church. The church is important, but our faith should not be built on the church. Another faulty foundation is a preacher. Now, at the first example here seemed self-deprecating. Well, now this one definitely is. But regardless of how it portrays my profession and my calling, it's true. Building your faith on a preacher, a person, is a recipe for an unstable faith and potential disaster. Now, it's a good thing, a great thing to be thankful for, for, for and honor those of us who serve God in a full-time capacity. And I'm humbled at the show of appreciation for me and my ministry. And there are people, mentors, and role models 
in my life and in my past that I hold in high regard because of the influence they had in my life over the years. Perhaps you have had others that step up in your faith journey that you look up to, that you look at and think, man, they have really helped me through some times. I look up to them as the ultimate example of faith. And they can be godly people. They can be really good people, faithful, and family, family men or family women, men of prayer and passion who are living to fulfill God's purpose in the world. But they're still just people, sinners saved by grace who live with temptation and failure. And none of them, none of us, would make a suitable foundation for anybody's faith. If you build your faith on a preacher, then what would happen if the preacher fails or leaves? Your faith might fail or leave right with them. And I've seen countless examples of moral failures or surprise exits of ministers where churches are left just devastated in their wake. And certainly there is a push and a pull to a church body's attachment to their minister I mean, I've seen examples where a minister serves at the same church for decades and he is beloved by the entire congregation. But when they retire, the church never recovers because they were so tied to the one person. And so all of these examples are problematic. And so I would warn you, don't build your faith on any preacher or church leader because it's a faulty foundation. Another faulty foundation in your faith is building it on your parents' faith. I thank God for my parents and their faith and for the importance they put on the church and God's Word and faith in Jesus. When Sunday came along in my house growing up, it didn't matter how late you stayed up playing video games the night before. It didn't matter how much you didn't want to wake up. It didn't matter how much you want to go. You didn't want to go. You were going to get up, you were going to eat a cinnamon twist, and you were going to go to church. Like, that's just how it went. And it was the same with Wednesday nights. That's the way that I grew up, and there was no debate or discussion about it until I went off to college. While I was living in my parents' house, under their roof, that was the expectation. And it didn't, it didn't do any good to argue about it, because you argued about it once or twice and realized you weren't going to get anywhere. And I thank God that my parents love the Lord and that they taught me to pray and to love God and to love others and to follow and serve Jesus. You know, I learned so much about the Bible because of my parents and their insistence that we be in church every Sunday. I learned about being committed to, to coming to church even when I didn't feel like it. And, and more than church, I, I remember my parents reading me a Bible story every night before I fell asleep when I was little. I learned that because of our faith in Jesus, we don't do a lot of what the world does, or we don't do a lot of what the world, say a lot of what the world says because we believe in something else. But despite all that I learned from them, building my faith upon theirs would be a giant mistake because it's a faulty foundation. God wants a relationship with me personally. He doesn't want a third-party relationship where he has to go through my parents to get to me. He wants a relationship with me. 
Yet you'd be surprised how many Christians are trying to build their faith on their parents' faith. And you might think, well, at least they're going to church and at least they believe what their parents believe and what they teach. At least they're hearing it. But that's a deceptive idea that works when they're young enough to control. But once they get old enough to start asking questions and making their own decisions, many of them turn away from God and the church altogether. You've heard us cite the statistics that claim that 70% of students who attend church as kids will leave their faith by the time they're 20. Now, if you've been around for a while, you might notice that number keeps going up. At one time, it was 40%, and then it was 50%. Now we're up to 70%. And judging by the absence of people in their 20s in many churches, I think we can see that's true information. And it's kind of sad because we're losing a generation of Christians to the world. Only a small percentage of them will come back to the church and to their faith. You know, I could have been part of that statistic. When I went off to college, when I was no longer under my parents' roof, though I had never fought against my parents when it came to going to the church, I also didn't really prioritize it. I didn't see the importance. I didn't have my own authentic faith. I had built it off my parents. And so I didn't prioritize my faith. I didn't uh, prioritize finding a, a church when I got to college. I didn't seek out a, a campus ministry. And I just stopped going. And maybe some of you have a similar story in your life. And the longer that I was away from a community of faith, the less that I lived out my faith. See, you can say that I don't need the church, that I don't need to be there all the time, that I don't need to be a part of a church in order to have a faith in Jesus, but I think when you put that to the test, you'll find that your faith is not as strong as it was when you were a part of that community of faith. And so for me, it went on that way for six or seven years. Now thankfully, I was one of the, the lucky ones that never really left my faith behind. I wasn't living it out the way I should have been, but I still believed and I still saw the importance of who Jesus was. And eventually some friends brought me back in. But your kids may not be so lucky. And so parents, if we just assume that our kids are going to automatically have a faith like ours, we need to think again. They will not survive this culture on a second-hand faith. They're living with more challenges to their faith than any other generation before. So we have to teach them not just what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. We need them to know what the big questions are before they even get to them, and then also what the answers to those questions are. Our next generation ministries, they can help out with that. You can bring your kids on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night, and we have amazing leaders and teachers that are going to teach them the best they can about God and Jesus and and, and the Bible. But the honest truth is, those next generation ministries get two, maybe three hours with your kids a week. And yeah, they're in school and they're asleep, but the majority of the time, guess what? They're with you. And if they never hear anything from you about faith or about Jesus, about why we believe what we believe, there's a huge gap in there somewhere. You know, your kids, your, for most of us, your kids look up to you like you're like the best thing ever. I hope, right? Until they get to a certain age and then, okay, they'll never admit it. But, right? But they're looking to you, right? If they come in here and they're getting the supplemental, they want to know what the primary thinks in the other times. I love what Moses told the parents of Israel as they were coming into the promised land. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children, 
Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And I think, to kind of paraphrase, Moses is saying, make it a part of your life. In every aspect of your life, make your faith a part of it. Don't leave it out. Don't put it on the outside. Don't make it just a separate compartment. Make it something that is an umbrella. Everything is an umbrella, or under the umbrella of your faith. Another faulty foundation for our faith is our feelings. Have you noticed that most all advertisements target our feelings and not our thinking? It used to be all you had to worry about was commercials on TV, and now it's on Facebook, and now it's online, and it's everywhere, right? But most of these advertisements are targeting your feelings. In fact, if you are in sales here this morning, you probably already know this, but this should be one of your tactics. Create a positive feeling in your potential customer about your product. Things like, don't worry about how much it's going to cost. Just imagine how it's going to feel driving around in it, right? You can worry about the payment later, but just imagine how that's going to feel. You know, Ashley and I... uh, we have uh, an addition to our family we uh, just kind of found out about a short time ago, and uh, we have a baby girl coming next spring. And uh, so we have been, oh, yeah, thank you, uh, we're over the moon, but that's another day. Uh, so, uh, you know, that has thrown us kind of looking into the minivan market. Once you get to three, you kind of can't deny it anymore, right? And uh, so we've been looking at, at cars, and as part of this like process, I was, I was listening to something yesterday where in our culture, we don't think, we think about what we want in a, in a car. We don't necessarily, it's, it's more than just get me from point A to point B. We don't usually go for the most base model. You could pay 10000 for a car, but often we find ourselves looking at the $50,000 car or more, right? We want all the bells and whistles. If I'm going to spend a lot of money, I want to have the right technology. I want a car that's going to last me a long time. I want all the comfort. We think a lot about the wants more than just the need. And so we don't Think about how much it's going to cost. We just imagine how we're going to feel driving around in it. When it comes to a minivan, if you're going to get a minivan, you want it to at least be kind of cool, right? Or in other advertisements, it's don't think about what that's going to do to your body. Just imagine how it's going to make you feel or how it's going to make you look. And because our culture is geared so much toward tapping into our emotions instead of our brains, the church is tempted to make the same pitch. And many Christians base their faith on their feelings. Now, God can definitely touch on our emotions. God created all of us, and as part of all of us, God created our emotions. Emotions are from God. And I'm so thankful for emotions because life would be so boring if we didn't have our emotions. But our emotions can be very shaky ground on which to build a foundation for your faith. If you build your faith on your feelings, what are you going to do when you've lost that loving feeling? (laughs) At least I didn't sing it. Your feelings are important. There's no doubt about that. But you need to move the center of your faith about eight inches to the north. 
I heard about a study done at Christian universities that said many of their incoming freshmen are are very passionate and, and emotional about their faith. They're on fire, but very few of them are able to pass a simple Bible quiz. In church, it used to be a place of, of reasoning and thinking, but the pendulum has swung the other way, and the church is now becoming a place of emotion and feeling. You know, I, I love a, a great worship song that might bring me to tears and make, have me raise in my hands and worship, but that doesn't do a whole lot for shoring up the foundations of my faith if I don't know what the Bible says. In our world... There are some hot-button social issues that the Bible is very clear about. But that's not what some base their beliefs on. They base their beliefs on how they feel about an issue, or how others in their circle of friends feel about an issue, or how a political party feels about an issue, or how an online community feels about an issue, or even how the church has made them or their friends feel about an issue. Let me just say something here. It doesn't matter how you feel or how I feel about an issue. If God has clearly spoken on it, then the matter is settled. There is no debate. And that's what we stand on here at Gateway. Because if God has spoken on an issue and it doesn't sit well with you, well, you can be upset with God, not us. And if you build your faith on your feelings, you might find yourself upset and disappointed more often than not. And if your faith is only built on your feelings, then what will happen when your feelings change? It's a faulty foundation. Now these are four of the most popular things that we build our faith on a lot of times that are faulty, but there are other things that, that believers attempt to build their faith on. And guess what? None of them are good. And so whether it's a church or, or a preacher or your parents' faith, or your feelings, or a host of any other things, they are all faulty foundations. So in the time left, we're going to answer the question that you might be thinking at this time is, okay, then what is a good foundation upon which to build my faith? This is when we get to John chapter 20. This is the place in the Bible where the Apostle Thomas gets his name. Do you remember Thomas's name? It's doubting Thomas. No sermon about doubt would be good without, or no sermon series about doubt without Thomas making an appearance somewhere in it, right? But I think Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap. I actually think that he's a model disciple here. I think he did something that we all need to do as well. Now let me set the scene here in John chapter 20 for you. This is after the crucifixion of Jesus. All the disciples have deserted him and they fled for their lives. And then when the morning of Resurrection Sunday came, most of the disciples were in the upper room. They're praying and hiding. And we we don't know why Thomas wasn't there with them. It just says that he wasn't. I mean, this is a, a, a tough time. You know, they took out Jesus, and now they're on the hunt for his followers. It's something that would continue on for a long time after this. And so those who gathered there heard from the women that, that Jesus' body, that the women had gone and they came running back. They said, Jesus, he's, he's not in the tomb anymore. And so the disciples, they get up and they, they run to investigate. I got to see this. They couldn't believe it. Could it be true that Jesus actually did what he said he was going to do, that he rose from the dead? 
So later that evening, after the incredible activities of the day, the disciples are gathered again in fear now that the Jewish leaders are going to come after them for the body. The word's gotten out that the body's not there. They're going to come after them. They're going to think that they have stolen the body. And to their surprise, Jesus appeared to them and said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. It was a remarkable moment of empowerment and mobilization. And now let's read the next few verses, starting with verse 24, John chapter, chapter 20. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the, other's disciple, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, from this passage, we call Thomas a doubter. And maybe he did have some serious questions, but wouldn't you, if you had just witnessed the cruel and brutal way that Jesus had died? I mean, guys, do you see, did you see what happened? That was worse than anything I've ever seen in my life, right? He was like laying open. He was up, I mean, he died. This wasn't just like any normal thing, right? He died in a bad way. I, I, I can't believe that, I, can't, I just can't believe that he's back. But did you notice what he does here? He refuses to believe something just because other people said it. He insisted on having the evidence. See, they said, we've seen the Lord, Thomas. And he said, really? Show me the evidence. Now, Thomas understood that the heart cannot embrace what the mind cannot believe. He didn't want to take any chances. He didn't want to hear any empty platitudes. He wanted proof. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. If I'm going to stake my life on something, if I'm going to give my life for something, I want to know that it's true, that I can stand on it as true. Don't you? Wouldn't it be good if all of us had the passion of a Thomas to discover the truth about our faith? And somebody said that there is more evidence today to prove the existence of God than ever before. Every day, science is discovering new truths to validate what the Bible claims to be true. Now, a week passed from that critical moment, and Thomas, he's still got doubts and questions rolling around in his mind. He is a skeptic, right? Maybe some of you are skeptics. Maybe you're numbers people. Maybe you're evidence people. This whole just believe thing, you're like, no, I got, I got more. I got questions rolling through my head all the time. I, I need to see it. And so he sees how the others are acting and what they're believing, but man, he's still, it's not enough for him. He's still seeking answers. It just doesn't all add up for him yet. So verse 26 says, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, <laughs> though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, now, what's interesting about that, other than the fact that the doors were locked and Jesus got in anyway, right, is that Thomas didn't say anything to Jesus before Jesus said, exactly the things you needed for proof, come here. Jesus knew already. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. 
you understand the power of the evidence? For some, it can save a life. It can save a soul. It can literally turn a skeptic back into a passionate Christian. Some of you this morning might have that as your story of faith. I was once a skeptic, but now I'm on fire for the Lord. Thomas had said, unless I see it, I cannot believe it. Unless I feel it, I cannot believe it. And then he saw, and then he felt, and he believed. Was he wrong to say that he had to see it for himself? No. That's kind of a theme in this whole chapter. Going back through chapter 20 here, look at verse 8. Peter and John ran to the tomb. John got there first, but he didn't go in. Peter went in first, then John. And when John went into the tomb, it says he saw and believed. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene was outside the tomb crying. Jesus came and appeared to her, but she thought he was the gardener. I think her head was buried in her hands as she cried, but when he called her name again, she recognized him. And in verse 18, it says, She went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Verse 19, when Jesus appeared to the disciples in the evening of, the re- of Resurrection Sunday, the Bible says, The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. In verse 24, the disciples told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. In verse 25, Thomas said, Unless I see him, I will not believe. Thomas asked for evidence, so when Jesus appeared to him, that's what he got. He got evidence and his doubts turned to my Lord and my God. And so this morning, here is your firm foundation. It's a faith built on Jesus Christ, our Lord and our God. Chapter 20, verse 29, Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, does this mean that we can't see him today? No. This is why John said what he did, what he said in the last two verses. John says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's saying, I have seen. Now here's the evidence. And I love the way that John starts his first letter. He says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, our our world is full of faulty foundations. We've named just four today, but there are many others. In our focus verse this morning, Jesus talked about the importance of a good foundation. Now, there's more to that section of Scripture than what we did in the focus verse, and I'm going to save you the kids' Sunday school song this morning. But know that he says that those who build their foundation on him will be able to withstand any storm. But those who try to build their foundation elsewhere will ultimately collapse. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you.
that you have provided us a firm foundation to build our lives on. That you have given us your son Jesus so that we may know that when we build our lives on him, no matter what it may look like after that, we know that we started with a good foundation. That we can withstand any storm. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that we would stop trying to build our lives on the sinking sand of this world. That we'd stop trying to build on faulty foundations. That we would know that any foundation that is not Jesus Christ will ultimately lead to disappointment and destruction. And so, Father, this morning as we come, I pray that we would turn our eyes to Jesus. If we build our lives on a faulty foundation, that we would fix it and instead start building our lives on Jesus. That everything would come back to Him. That as the foundation of our lives, as the cornerstone of what we're building, that we would know the importance that whatever else might come our way, when the storms of life come our way, that we would know that Jesus is the ultimate foundation. And so, Father, I I pray that we would look for the evidence, that we would look for the why and what we believe, that we would delve into that. Instead of spending our time on, on pointless things, arguing about things that aren't going to matter, that we would devote our lives to Jesus and to our faith in Him, that we'd be able to explain to others why He is the foundation. So Father, we thank You love. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus, that He came for each one of us, that He went to the cross for each one of us, and rose on the third day for each one of us so that we may have eternal life. We thank you for that amazing, that amazing love you have for us that you would give him so we might be able to spend eternity with you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and you've never given your life over to Christ, talking a lot about faulty foundations today. And the world's going to tell you that there's a lot of things you can build your life on. There's a lot of ways that you can go. There's a lot of paths. But Jesus said, no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the only way to the Father. And so any foundation that is not built on Jesus Christ is a faulty foundation. And I know that there are times in our life where it's hard to see that. There's going to be storms in our life that come. There's going to be mountains and there's going to be valleys. And sometimes it seems like even Jesus is the faulty foundation. But you know what? (laughs) That is a lie. We sang that song earlier about the evidence. As As I was listening to it last night to kind of get ready for today, the thing that kind of came over me was all of our lives can go in a lot of different directions. And some of it, some of it might not be as fair. It may not be fair. 
And I know there's a lot of you that are struggling with a whole vast array of things, things that I'll never have to deal with, things that a lot of people will never have to deal with, just storms that maybe seem like they never let up. And you may see, we may talk and sing about promises that God has made, and you may think, man, I'm not seeing it because my life is really hard right now. But the one promise that has been made to each one of us is that God so loved each one of us in this world that he didn't want to see us perish, but that he would send his son Jesus to die for each one of us, that he would wash away the sins of each one of us so that we might have eternal life. And so I don't know what this look like for you, but I know that when we place our faith in Jesus, we're all going to be together. That's the promise. And though you may not see a lot of other things in your life, know that that is available to you. It's available to each one of us that would say, I want Jesus to be the king of my life. If you've never made that decision, there's no better day than today to make that decision. Say, I want Jesus to be the Lord and the king of my life. That from this day forward, I'm making myself available to him to go where he wants me to go. Because anywhere I try to go that's not with Jesus is ultimately in vain. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Never made that decision. I would love to talk to you about that this morning. To talk to you about baptism this morning. To come in front of all these people, all these witnesses that we may celebrate with you that you've given your life over to him and you are in your old life is gone. Now my foundation is on Jesus. I'd love to talk to you about that this morning. Talk about the storms of life. We talked about ups and downs and mountains and valleys. And maybe you're in a valley right now. Maybe you're in a storm right now that you are struggling. And that's okay. It's okay to be struggling sometimes. Because this world doesn't let up just because we love Jesus. But we do have the ultimate weapon God has provided us the ultimate weapon and prayer with him. Let's invite the God of the universe who cares so much about each one of us, the God that is in charge of all these things, that created all these things. Let's invite him into whatever situation might be going on in your life. And so I would love to pray with you this morning. Maybe you're not comfortable coming right now. You come after the service or sometime during the week. You can also scan the QR code, send in a prayer request to the information card. Whatever it looks like, whatever your comfort level is, we want to pray with you. Because that, we don't fight with earthly weapons. We fight with the ultimate weapon. We want to invite God into whatever situation might be going on here. So if you have a decision to make this morning, if you need prayer this morning, I'll be right down front here. I just ask that all of us stand and sing our final song to you.